Good morning. Welcome to our Sunday morning worship here at West Houston Bible Church. A couple of announcements before we uh, we begin our time of worship. Uh, first announcement is to remind everybody that uh, daylight savings times time ends at midnight Sunday, November sixth, which is two weeks from now. So you need to remember to turn your clock back, or you'll be early, right? Then um, another announcement is this last summer, due to the initiative of a number of people at some different uh, doctrinal churches, they um, uh, had a group effort to begin a summer camp for teenagers, Camp Arete, which most of you are aware of. And so this, uh, uh, this spring they're going to have, I know it's a little early now, but they want you to prepare for this. Uh, they're going to have a... Um, a garage sale in order to raise money for for the camp. This is primarily to help offset the cost of the camp and to provide some scholarships for those who have uh, financial problems by being able to attend to the, the camp. So if you have anything that you wish to uh, donate to them to sell at their garage sale, then you need to contact uh, Jeff Phipps, and they're going to start collecting items and store them somewhere between uh, between now and then. And also we have, still have the uh, Samaritan Purse uh, contribution for uh, Christmas, and that is uh, those boxes and instructions are back in the uh, fellowship hall, and the deadline for that is November the 13th. We gather together each Sunday for the purpose of worship. Worship is an interesting word. When you study it in both the original languages, they have the idea of submission to authority. Literally, the words have the idea of submitting to authority, bowing down before a king, bowing down before a sovereign. And so worship is a focus upon uh, submitting to the authority of God. So the ultimate form of worship is to study God's word and then to learn it and apply it under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit to our lives so that we can then uh, think and live according to God's word. But worship has different aspects, as we see in Scripture. There's aspects of praise. There's aspects of thanksgiving. uh, There's aspects of giving. All of these are part of worship where we honor God because he is the one, first of all, who created us, and secondly, he is the one who had a perfect plan of redemption, whereby we could be saved by simply trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. In Scripture, in each dispensation, there are clear guidelines as to the, uh, the regulations for worship. And in the New Testament, uh, Jesus said that we are to worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. By means of the Spirit means that we should be in fellowship. We are to walk by means of the Spirit. When we yield to the sin nature, we're walking according to the flesh or the sin nature. The way of recovery is to simply confess our sins to God, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Our Father, it is good that we can come together this morning to focus upon you, for it is in you that we have our life and breath, and all that we have is due to your grace. And Father, we need to take the time to get away from all of the things that distract us from our ultimate purpose in life and from our focus upon you so that we can be reminded of your grace, that we can be reminded of your faithfulness to us, and that we can be encouraged to walk faithfully by means of the Holy Spirit day by day. Father, we continue to pray for those in this congregation who are facing uh, serious uh, illnesses. We continue to pray for Jim Burney and we pray for a kidney for him. We pray for others who are fighting various stages of cancer, and we pray that you would comfort them and their families and give wisdom to their doctors and strengthen them spiritually as they go through these trials. Father, we continue to pray for missionaries. So many missionaries are suffering to one degree or another from financial support during this time because of the economy. And yet we know that you are faithful to supply their every need through your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And we pray that uh, you would supply those needs, especially we think of Jim Myers and his ministry in Kiev. And now, Father, as we come together this morning to focus upon you, we pray that we can put aside those thoughts, those ideas, those uh, things that are bothering us, those things that uh, we're getting ready to do this afternoon or this coming week, and that we can just put our focus in the moment to focus upon you, who you are, and what you have provided for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our first hymn this morning is the hymn, Praise Him, Praise Him. This hymn was written by Fanny Crosby in the uh, 19th century. She wrote the words. The lyrics were written by William Howard Doan. I always feel a personal attachment to uh, uh, Howard Doan, because he was born, as you see in the screen there, on February the 3rd, 1832, in Preston, Connecticut, right across the street from Preston City Bible Church. In fact, he grew up at that church when it was a Baptist church, and he, when he became an adult, he was the minister of music there, and he collaborated on a number of hymns with Fanny Crosby, and she even donated a, a um, pump organ Uh, to that congregation. And the uh, site of his home is now uh, uh, just a a town park called Doan Park. So that just gives you a little uh, background on, on this hymn. But the focus on this hymn is on what God has provided for us in our salvation. So think about the words as you sing them. Please stand, hymn number 106. Our scripture reading... This morning is in Psalm, I mean Proverbs chapter 1. Actually, I'm going to read the first seven verses of Proverbs 1 and then the first nine verses of Proverbs chapter 2. The focus in Proverbs is on the acquisition and use of wisdom. Wisdom, as I've pointed out many times in Scripture, is not the intellectual philosophical wisdom of the Greeks, but it has to do with skillful living from the application of the Word of God in the life of the believer. It is in these opening sections in Proverbs that we see the emphasis that should be our emphasis on knowledge and wisdom and understanding. Just pay attention as I read through this to all the different uh, 
ways in which uh, Solomon uses different words related to knowledge. Proverbs, beginning in Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now skip down to the beginning of chapter 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity and every good path. Let's stand for our second hymn, number 493, it is well with my soul, number 493. Please stand. Scripture teaches that all that we have comes from the Lord. He has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, which emphasizes the fact that he is sufficient for us for everything in life. He's given us all that we need physically to give us that which we need to be able to fulfill uh, our his mission and plan for our life, and he has uh, given us everything spiritually so that we can face and encounter, surmount whatever challenges, whatever difficulties, whatever tests we may face. God supplies every need, the Scripture says, through his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So the worship of giving is grounded upon our understanding of grace. It's not uh, giving in order to gain something from God to stimulate his blessing in our lives, but it is giving because we have received God's blessing in our lives because he has provided so much for us, and it is our response to his grace, and it is a, an expression of our desire to support the teaching of his word both in the local church and through missions. Scripture teaches, as every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for all that you have given us, for all that you provide for us, and that you have given this to us in a way that is to reinforce the fact that we are to live day by day and moment by moment in dependence upon you. Father, we're thankful for your grace and the grace in providing for our 
physical needs for this congregation, for this church, for the ministries that we have and the missionaries we support. And, Father, we just uh, give these gifts now as an expression of our uh, gratitude to you and our desire to support the teaching of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I wanted to uh, encourage the congregation. Last week, uh, Sally was ill and was not here to play the organ, and neither did we have any other of our backup uh, piano or organ players here, so we sang a cappella. And I got an email this week from one of our uh, distant uh, members saying that she had listened to us sing a cappella last week several times every day, and just what a great thing it was to hear how the congregation had improved in their singing over the years, and it was just wonderful. So I, uh, I thought y'all would be encouraged to hear that. Uh, so that was great. Not that we want Sally to think that she doesn't need to be here. She stepped out in the hall for a minute. I want to make sure she heard that. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study in the Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we come to your Word today, we pray that we might have true humility and teachability, as the writer of Proverbs says, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and that fools despise knowledge and instruction. And so, Father, we pray that you would might make us uh, humble this morning as we teach your word, as we study your word, and that we might come to understand the significance and the impact that these verses, that this teaching should have in our lives and in our day-to-day walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. We pray that uh, we might be able to focus today on what your word has to say and that God the Holy Spirit, as he makes this clear to us, that we would be responsive to his teaching. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Colossians chapter 2, and we are still in verse 2. When we, I began looking at verse 2 several weeks ago, I uh, was not uh, initially uh, aware of how much was in this particular verse and how important it is to grasp this verse, the principles of application are crucial for us because of the emphasis that they bring to Paul, the Apostle Paul's understanding 
of his mission in terms of teaching and equipping and training uh, the believers to whom he ministered. And by application, this also applies to the equipping ministry of every pastor teacher in terms of their or his local congregation. Topic today is on treasure hunting. Some of you may have actually done some treasure hunting. I have a, a friend who has one of a metal detector, and for years when he was in the military and stationed anywhere near uh, Civil War battlefields, he was always going out on getting permission from uh, various landowners, private landowners surrounding the parks, and he would go out and see what he could find, and he found a lot of treasure. Now, that took a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort to find treasure. It's not just lying there on the ground. There's no signs anywhere that say treasure's over here. You have to take time. You have to plan what you're doing. You have to have a systematic approach, and it has to be something that you put effort and energy into in order to find find and discover the treasure. In life, we're all seeking treasure. Some of us are seeking treasure in success. Some are seeking treasure in accomplishment. Some seek treasure in knowledge and academic advancement. Others seek treasure in family, in friends, in some sort of social life. Others seek it through recognition and achievement. Others seek it in money. Uh, In some sense, everybody seems to be pursuing some form of security or significance as their treasure. And many today just live for pleasure, they live for comfort, and they live for entertainment. Jesus addressed the issue of treasure in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. There he said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For, he explains in verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now that's an important principle, because whatever we think of that has value in our lives, that will bring value and meaning to our lives, is what we pursue. What we're pursuing, how we spend our time, how we take spend our Uh, disposable time, as it were, when we're not at work or taking care of other obligations, says a lot about what is meaningful, what is significant in our lives, what brings meaning and significance in our lives. And Scripture teaches that there are earthly uh, treasures, but there's not a problem with having or accumulating earthly treasures, but that should not be the priority. There is something that goes beyond that, and that relates to spiritual treasures. And that is a focal point in the next couple of verses in Colossians chapter 2. And it is first expressed in this verse in Colossians 2 verse 2, as Paul expresses his, the purpose of his teaching ministry which is also the teaching ministry, the, the focal point of any teaching ministry of any pastor teacher. We are to attain to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father 
and of Jesus Christ. Now, last time I focused on this phrase, the riches of the full assurance of understanding, that that term riches, a term that describes wealth or abundance of something in life, is often used in Scripture in reference to all that we have, all that we have been given in Jesus Christ. These are not things that we are accumulating spiritually, but what we already have in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. This is something we already have. And last time I was emphasizing the fact that we need to learn to live in light of those riches and learn what those riches are, what that portfolio of spiritual assets consists of, and learn how to exploit that. So God has given us this, these riches. The next word we talked about last time, uh, pleuroferia, talks about certainty, conviction that something is true, a full assurance. But how do we get that certainty? How do we get that assurance? I have a friend who is not a Christian, and usually about once a year when we have lunch or dinner together, he will... Uh, uh, sort of corner me a little bit, test me a little bit, and say, okay, why do you believe what you believe? And we usually go through the same thing every time, and, and he almost always ends by saying, I just wish I had the confidence and the certainty that you have. But how do you know it's true? And I think that's the question that not only do most unbelievers ask, the skeptics, but many believers just, how do I really know this is true? Scripture here indicates how we know it's true. It's a full assurance, and it's followed by another genitive noun, sunesis, which relates to that aspect of our thinking that focuses on comprehension, perception, understanding, uh, intelligence, uh, various other ways, but it focuses on the content of our understanding that as we come to truly comprehend the content of Scripture, what the Scripture teaches, and we internalize that as part of our own thinking, then a result of that is we have confidence in God's Word. Our confidence is strengthened in God's Word because our, of our understanding of God goes on to say that this full assurance comes from, that's a, it's a generative of source there, comes from our understanding, but it moves us toward a goal, which is what I was emphasizing last time, which is expressed by the Greek noun epinosis, which is uh, the basic core noun is gnosis for knowledge, and it is uh, preceded by a prefix epi, which indicates uh, full experiential knowledge, uh, more intimate uh, expression of the knowledge of something. So what Paul says here, as I pointed out the last couple of weeks, is the goal of the apostolic ministry, the goal of the pastoral ministry, is to equip the saints through teaching and instruction. And that involves knowledge and, and, and learning. So that the mo- most important thing we can focus on as believers is coming to know God's Word, because that is how He has revealed Himself to us. 
That's the only way that he has revealed himself to us in terms of precise knowledge. There is a general knowledge that is revealed through creation, what is referred to by theologians as general revelation, but in terms of special revelation, that is restricted to the 66 books of the Bible, 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New Testament. And once the canon closed, once the last apostle died, there was no longer, uh, there were no longer individuals who were gifted by God to receive, transmit, and record divine revelation. But not only that, in the New Testament, it was the, the apostolic authority that provided the ultimate protection against the addition of false teaching or the addition of what later became called pseudepigrapha, false writings, those writings that, cl- that made a claim to be Scripture but which were not. In other words, the, the, the guardian, the guardians of truth and revelation were the apostles. Once they passed off the scene, then there's no longer a basis in the Scripture for protecting or determining what is and is not divine revelation. So we have a set amount of revelation that we are to study, and we have to study it to understand who God is and what he has provided for us. So the riches that we have in Christ, which are going, which will connect in a couple of verses to the treasures that are hidden in Christ, those riches come and are activated in our life only as we come to a full comprehension and understanding of his word. And that gives us a confidence in him as we go through the growth and maturation process so that then we can come come and grow in unity in the body of Christ. Now, there's some key words that are used in this passage, as I pointed out already, understanding, knowledge, and then we'll also see the word mystery, which relates to the giving, the disclosure of revelation. Uh, the mystery does not refer to some, something secret or something that is incomprehensible. But just as a reminder, because we'll focus on these words a little more this morning, there's three basic words that I've talked about a little bit already. We have them in Greek in the New Testament. We'll look at those a little later on. But the Greek concepts, that the Greek words that are used, don't get their meaning for the most part from the Greek culture, but they derive their meaning from the Hebrew Old Testament because Paul, Peter, John, James, the writers of the New Testament were originally uh, schooled in the Hebrew scriptures and, and Hebrew and Aramaic as their background language. So when they're thinking in terms of doctrinal theological categories, they're thinking in terms of Hebrew vocabulary as their frame of reference, not Greek culture as their frame of reference. Now, these are the three words I've mentioned the last couple of weeks. Understanding in the Hebrew was the word bina, which often had to do with not just learning information, not just comprehension, but it took it a little bit further to putting things together in order to think critically and to evaluate 
things that were going on in our life. So there's more of a practical application sense to understanding. It's not just a, not just an abstract understanding and comprehension of something in our mind, but it's the ability to take that and apply it into real life situations. The knowledge then comes as a result of taking that framework that comes from understanding and add to it more information to build a full-orbed divine viewpoint framework for everything in life. Wisdom takes it another step further and has to do with the skillful application of that knowledge in our lives so that uh, we have examples of this uh, Hebrew word chokmah used back in the time of uh, the Exodus when uh, Aholiab and Bezalel, the craftsmen who, were, who oversaw the guilds of silversmiths and goldsmiths and carpenters and others who were building, the, uh, building all the furniture for the tabernacle and constructing the tabernacle, that God gave them a spirit of wisdom now, that wasn't in terms of Bible knowledge and application. It's a more practical sense than that. It's the skill in their craftsmanship so that what they constructed when they built uh, all of the different components for the tabernacle and they built the, uh, the main pieces of furniture and then they built all the little knobs and all the little decorative things, there was, it was at the height of beauty. There was nothing in all of the world that was as beautiful, that was as intricate, that was artistic, and that was as aesthetically pleasing as what they made. The tabernacle may have been a sort of a mobile home for God in the desert, but it was a beautiful mobile home from God for God in the desert. Now these terms are all have, of course, their their under, their application in terms of the spiritual life and the application of God's word. Now this knowledge is then said in the last uh, phrase, last part of Colossians 2.2, to be knowledge related to the mystery of God. And the New King James Version translates it both of the Father and of Christ. Both of the Father and of Christ. Now there's a, there are two problems really at this point. The first problem is a problem related to the text. There are a variety of different readings at this point, which makes it a little bit confusing. Uh, the, pre- the, the predominant ones, though, would read the mystery of God and then just the word Christ, Christu in the genitive, following that. So that would be translated the mystery of God literally of Christ, but that genitive could actually be translated some different ways. That's the second problem. First of all, you have to decide what does the text actually say. The second thing is, what does it mean? How do you translate it? The second way, way that we have is the phrase, mystery of God, followed by chi Christu, and of Christ. But should that, that chi be translated and Christ? the mystery of God and Christ, or the mystery of God, even Christ. And then we have another reading, mystery of God, nothing else, just Christ. That's one English translation. 
And those are aside from the one that we have in the New King James, which is also in the majority text, the majority of manuscripts, the mystery of God, and it could be translated, and of the Father, and of Christ. But often when you have two ands, in Greek it can be translated both and. So what is this? What's the reading? Well, there's so many, such a variety, and some of the, uh, the reading that we have in the King James, the majority of manuscripts, some would say, well, that's, that is the longest reading, so it wasn't that because there's a trend towards um, if you have a short reading and it's not clear, then later scribes might try to add a word or two just to clarify the meaning. And that's why you, how you pick up some of these alternate, alternate readings. Sometimes they wrote it in the margin, and then the next person that copied that manuscript put it into the text instead of leaving it, leaving it in the margin. But by looking, I think by looking at the context here, even if we can't identify with precision the, the, the specific words that are here and solve this textual problem, and I've wrapped my head around it a lot the last couple of weeks, and I'm not sure, but I think we can be sure what the meaning is because of the context. It really helps us to clarify it. First thing we have to understand is the meaning of the word mystery. This isn't like a mystery. This isn't something that is some sort of secretive, esoteric uh, knowledge that only certain people have access to. That is maybe one reason Paul uses this word here is because the word uh, mysterion, as it was used in the Gnostic religions of Greece at the time, the Eleusarian mysteries, the Delphi mysteries, and these other mystery religions had that idea that there was a secret knowledge, a special knowledge, a special insight that God would give you that if you uh, got into the right kind of uh, service and you'd gone through the initiatory rites and you uh, got into the right sort of ecstatic uh, mindset that the God would speak through you. Sometimes that would be in gibberish, and they confuse that in Corinth. They confuse that with tongues. But uh, this was uh, their idea of the God entering the worshiper and giving them special insight into uh, into God and into the meaning of life. And that had a lot of attraction in the first century in, in the Greek culture. They had pretty much given up on the idea that either, uh, that philosophy, either as rationalism, the, the rationalism of Plato or the empiricism of uh, uh, Aristotle, could give answers. And so because they had become rather skeptical about philosophy and logic, they were leaping to mysticism as a solution. The word mysticism also has is a cognate to the word uh, to the word mystery. Now we don't have mystery religions quite like that today, but we do have our counterparts and derivatives. For example, Freemasonry has the same kind of idea that if you go through various stages and you learn different things and take different oaths, then when you reach certain a certain level, then you're given the uh, the secret knowledge, the the mystery. A lot of those ideas were picked up by Joseph Smith when he uh, founded and invented Mormonism, 
And the idea is, and Mormons use that a lot, you become a temple Mormon, which is the inner sanctum, and you have to go through various circles of knowledge. And so if you talk to somebody who's a friend, and they're not a temple Mormon, and they're just a basic uh, novice in Mormonism, they may think that they're not much different from a Christian church. But as you go through tighter and tighter circles of knowledge within Mormonism, at each stage you have to take another oath of secrecy, and uh, you get a little closer to uh, that which is taught within uh, with to Temple Mormons. So what's what they believe as a Temple Mormon is not the same as what they believe if they're just a basic uh, basic initiate or novice in Mormonism. You also have this in in a lot of New Age thought. You have various uh, Gnostic ideas that are picked up in in different kinds of. Uh, uh, New Age, Theosophy, this this kind of thing. So it's always been a plague in the church. People don't want to accept what God has revealed. There's got to be some sort of uh, hoop that I jump through in order to gain special insight into God that is that nobody else nobody else has. Another way in which we think of the word mystery is the idea that this means that. God's not comprehensible. God's not understandable. He's a mystery to us. He's cloaked behind something, and we just we just can't understand him. So they use that to justify the fact that, that this person will have their idea of the divine and that person will have their idea of the divine. But ultimately, God is. we all agree that God is good and loving, and he certainly isn't that evil, judgmental God that those Christians worship that are going to have eternal condemnation. That doesn't fit. So they have their various ideas, but they, they want to emphasize this fact that God is basically unknowable. That's not what mystery means when it is used in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it has the idea of, of previously unrevealed information. It always has to do with revelation. Now, we do recognize that God is, in one sense unknowable. Passages such as Isaiah 55, 8, and 9, where God said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. It is true that God is infinite. He is infinite in his in every aspect of his being, and we cannot comprehend that. We cannot know God completely or exhaustively, but we can know God in a limited manner, and in that limited manner, we can know him truly because he has revealed himself to us, and even though he ha- we are not able to comprehend God as he is, we can understand and comprehend what God has said to us about himself so that we can be confident that what we do know about him from his revelation is true, and we can have confidence in that. We cannot know him exhaustively or comprehensively, but we can know him truly as he has revealed himself in his word. A way in which uh, one, one verse or one time in which God uses the word or the scriptures use the word mystery in this context in this way is that 
uh, just a few verses back in Colossians 1.27, we read, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery. See, making known informs us that a mystery is something that is made known. In the church age, in the first century, God was disclosing information about himself, about Jesus Christ, about the spiritual life of the church age and all that God was providing for church age believers. And he was giving this information which had never before been revealed. It didn't change or contradict anything that had been revealed before, but it took things to a new level. God had a new plan following uh, Christ's ascension to heaven, and that included the beginnings of a new group of people, a new people of God, the church. The church does not replace Israel, but because of Israel's disobedience to God, rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, God's plan for Israel was put on hold. Eventually, he will return to that plan, and there will be a culmination of his plan for Israel and the eventual fulfillment of all of the promises he made in the Old Testament to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Colossians 1 27 informs us that part of this new mystery doctrine, this previously unrevealed doctrine, is related to the Gentiles. That in the Old Testament, the Gentiles were sort of also rans in terms of divine revelation. The Jewish people were given the promises and the covenants of God, and they were to be a light to the world, and they were to carry the knowledge of God to the Gentiles. And as the Gentiles traveled in caravans, etc., through the ancient world, they would come to Israel, see the difference that was there, and then take the word back to their uh, cultures and their uh, nations. Israel failed, though, in that responsibility to be a, a, a light to the world. And so uh, in this dispensation, the church is called to go out uh, to the world taking the gospel. Part of this, this is that mystery, is that in the church age that God has created a new people, the church, where there is not an emphasis on the ethnic distinction between Jew and Gentile. All believers are baptized or identified by means of the Holy Spirit with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's known as a baptism by means of the God, the Holy Spirit. It happened at the instant you believed in Jesus Christ as Savior. You didn't experience anything. It's not an experiential event, but it is an actual legal forensic thing that is accomplished by God at the instant of our salvation. And so we are one in Christ, Scripture teaches. The, in the Old Testament, in the law, there was an emphasis on uh, racial distinctions, ethnic distinctions, gender distinctions, and, and social distinctions. Only free male Jews could go into the temple to worship. You were excluded if you were a woman, if you were a Gentile, and if you were a slave. So when Paul writes in Galatians that there is neither uh, bond nor slave, male nor female, uh, Jew or Gentile, we're all one in Christ, he's not saying that... Uh, He's not making actual distinctions and saying, well, we're not men and women anymore. 
I mean, it's just obvious. Look around. We still have those distinctions. Uh, he's not saying that uh, he's not setting the slaves free. He is merely saying that in this new body of Christ, there's not a, there are no distinctions related to our worship or access of God related to these social distinctions or ethnic ethnic distinctions. So that the mystery is clearly related to this new entity, the body of Christ, and the spiritual wealth that God has given everyone who is in Christ. This is supported by the parallel passage to Ephesians uh, 2, 2 through 4, which is expressed a little differently in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. I want you to notice the similar words, the similar terminology that we have in Ephesians 3, and this helps elucidate the meaning of Colossians 2, 2, and 3. Paul says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, I see he's talking about his apostolic authority and his apostolic ministry there, just as he is in Colossians 2. To me, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's the same thing he's talking about here in Colossians 2.2, that we may know the riches of the full assurance of our understanding of the mystery of God, which is Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of this mystery. That is, we all partake and participate in as a partnership in the revelation that God has given us related to our position in Christ. This mystery is the new revelation given in the New Testament related to the new dispensation of the church age and the spiritual life of the church age believer. So it's to make all see. Now, another thing I want to point out here is in Greek thought, seeing is a way that they often expressed knowledge. How you come to, when you come to know something, you, it's illuminated as opposed to being confusing and in darkness, so you see it. So, so you have this metaphor of seeing, and in Ephesians 1.19, Paul talks about the eyes of our soul being enlightened, so this imagery of sight is just a way of, of uh, expressing knowledge. To make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages had been hidden in God. Now, that word hidden in God is a word that doesn't mean that it, it's not like the secret knowledge of the Gnostics, where you had to go through various hoops to get to. The word hidden is often used in contrast to the disclosure of revelation. And it has to do with the fact that God was not yet ready to disclose the information related to the church age until the time was right. So it, there was knowledge that God did not, had not revealed yet, uh, that this knowledge was hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God. See, as we look at our passage here in Colossians 2, we're going to learn in verse 3 that it is in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So there's a learning process to get to that. Here we have the manifold wisdom of God to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Now that phraseology relates to the angelic realm. 
And this describes the fact that believers, as we grow and learn about our spiritual assets in Christ, the wealth that we have in Christ, and we activate that in our lives through application, this then becomes a visible testimony not only to the human race around us, but also before the angels in heaven. Our spiritual life is vital in terms of a greater conflict than that which is on the earth, that is the angelic conflict in the heavens. And then in Ephesians 3.11, Paul wraps up by saying, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we've seen that the mystery of God refers to previously unrevealed information about God. This fits with both uh, the previous reference to mystery in Colossians 1.27, as well as the reference in Ephesians 3 that connects this to what we have, the riches that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, when we get to verse 3, verse 3 begins in the English with this phrase, in whom. It's a masculine relative pronoun in the Greek. And it refers back to Christ. Now, the one thing that those various views have, on the various uh, uh, texts have, mystery of God, comma, Christ, the mystery of God and or even Christ, the mystery of God, both the Father and of Christ, the one thing they all have in common is the mystery of God, comma, something Christ. So the in whom here relates back to Christ. So the mystery of God defined in context is something we can be sure of that's related to Christ. That's exactly what Paul says in in Ephesians chapter 3. It's related to who and what we are in Christ. So even if we aren't sure what the precise reading is there because of the presence or absence of one or two conjunctions, it doesn't change the foundational teaching that is there that it is in Christ that we have these riches. Colossians 2.3 says that it is in whom in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The word there is in Ephesians is the word apokrufos, Crypto is the root verb. We have the English word cryptic or crypt. A crypt is the hidden place in, a, in the early churches below uh, the uh, podium, the front of the church, where they would uh, bury people. And so that was, it was hidden. So that was referred to by the, by the word crypt. So it be, now we think of a crypt as a burial place, but that's not the original, the original meaning. So this is apa krufos, the, it's hidden in Christ. It's in him are hidden what? What's that next word? This is one of those words that's so important. People just blow right past. In him are hidden some of the treasures. Is that what it says? No. It says all the treasures. This word here and in so many other places, like uh, the passage I quote frequently, Second Peter chapter 1, verses, two, uh, verses 3 and 4, that, that God has given us everything related to life and godliness. He didn't leave anything out. His omniscience didn't have a glitch, and he forgot something. 
You're not going to hit a circumstance in life and say, oh, God, what do I do here? What do you, how do I handle this? You haven't given me anything. He's given us everything. And the only way to learn about it is to go to the Word, to study the Word, to drive deep into the Word, not just hitting things on the surface, but learning what the Word says beyond just a sort of skimming across uh, the top of the Word. We have to learn what these treasures are uh, related to wisdom and knowledge. So back to the three words I mentioned at the beginning, understanding, knowledge, and wisdom. Understanding is the Greek word bina, which has to do with also discernment. It's related to the Greek word sunesis here. And sunesis emphasizes the critical thinking skill in the brain, in the mind. Critical thinking skills. That means you have the ability on the basis of doctrine to evaluate what is taught, what is claimed, what is heard, and not get sucked into false doctrine. That's going to come up in the next verse. So we have to develop an understanding. We have to have those critical thinking skills. I'm always amazed how many Christians can can rattle off a bunch of doctrine and then they read some novel or they read some book and they just get thrown way off course because they haven't evaluated it. They haven't developed critical thinking skills. I remember years ago when one of the uh, Christian novels, Christian fiction was, uh, in this literary sense of the term, uh, was just uh, coming on the scene in the late 80s, and there was a novelist by the name of Frank Peretti who wrote a book called This Present Darkness. And, oh, people just loved that. It became a bestseller. And yet it reflected a lot of heretical and erroneous and non-biblical ideas related to spiritual warfare. I wrote a book review on that that came to the attention of the president of Harvest House, and he contacted Tommy Ice and me to write a book on spiritual warfare. He gave us seven months to do it. I thought that, I thought that was warfare. That's how our book, What the Bible Teaches About Spiritual Warfare, came into being. And he taught things such as the angels can't, the holy angels can't really act on our behalf unless we pray. The more we pray, it's sort of like blowing up a, a balloon. The more you pray, the more power and authority the angels get. If you don't pray, then they shrink down. They become a little more impotent. Um, a lot of other ideas that were in that book. And I was working on my doctorate at Dallas Seminary at the time, and I was amazed that people come up to me, oh, that book encouraged me to pray. And I'd say, well, what precise biblical teaching in the book about prayer encouraged you? And they would, you know, typically give me two or three things. I'd say, well, find that in the Bible. I can't. Okay, so, so you read a novel. First of all, you claim it was just a novel, so you can't take anything seriously, but you say it did. You can take part of it seriously. You, you were encouraged to pray. But what you told me about prayer isn't biblical. So why did you read the book? Then they'd say, oh, you're just too rational. <laughs> See, that's mysticism. That has nothing to do with studying the text and learning the text. And it showed that somebody who's got a THM from Dallas Seminary might have a lot of academic knowledge or gnosis, but they had zero 
understanding, zero synesis, zero ability to apply that in a real-world situation. Last week, I may have stepped on a few toes because I hit it towards the end of the message and I addressed some of the problems with this very popular book that's out right now called Heaven is Real. Same problem. Uh, Here you have a child that comes along, claims a a near-death experience. I'm not questioning that. But but what is claimed that what was seen in that near-death experience doesn't jive with the Bible. Parts of it do, but many parts of it do not. Of the 33 things that this four-year-old child claimed to have seen in heaven, only uh, 15 can be substantiated from Scripture. Or rather, it's the other way around. 18 can be substantiated from Scripture. 15 can't be substantiated from Scripture. And some of that 15 just directly contradicts Scripture. So the point that I was making last time was if we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, it is the Scripture that should give us the confidence, the full assurance of the truth, not a book on somebody's experience. That it says something very negative about your spiritual life if you have to go to a book like that to gain confidence in truth that is already given by God. I mean, there's just something about the fact that if God says it, why do you need anything else to make it more certain? And yet that's often what happens today. So it comes back to this whole issue of assurance of the Word of God, the truth, the veracity of the Word of God, and it comes back to the issue of the sufficiency, the sufficiency of God's, of God's Word. And it's only through God's Word that we can gain the understanding, the knowledge, which is, in Greek you have two words, gnosis and epinosis. Gnosis and epinosis many, many times are used interchangeably. There are times, though, when the writer uses the word to emphasize a slight distinction. In those cases, gnosis focuses more on an apprehension of the basic facts, and epinosis emphasizes something that is a more intimate, uh, direct knowledge. This is ep- in this passage we have the word epinosis in that we may attain uh, <clears throat> through the, all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge, epinosis, of the mystery of God. That all indicates a growth process starting from basic knowledge to full experiential knowledge. This is the growth process in the spiritual life. And as we grow under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, as we walk by means of the Holy Spirit, then that knowledge of God's Word then gets transformed into application skill, which is wisdom. Wisdom is emphasized many times in Scripture. In the Old Testament, in Solomon's prayer, he prays, Now, God, give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can judge this great people of yours? Then God said to Solomon, Because this was in your heart, that is, God had said, Whatever you want, ask, and I'll give it to you. And the only thing Solomon asked for was for wisdom. Because this is what you've asked for instead of riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies. You haven't asked for long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may judge my people over whom I made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings who had, uh, none of the kings have had who were before you, nor shall any after you have the like. 
See, wisdom and knowledge always go together. You have to have knowledge before you can have wisdom. You have to have understanding first, then knowledge and wisdom. It's a growth process. Isaiah, two passages. Isaiah 33, 6, wisdom and knowledge, and knowledge will be the stability of your times. In Christ, remember, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want stability in your life? Then you have to learn what our riches are in Jesus Christ. Nothing else will give you stability. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. I read from Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That is humility before God and submission to his authority. Isaiah 47.10, for you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. See, their wisdom and knowledge is used to refer to human viewpoint wisdom and knowledge. And what they have done is basing their life on the human viewpoint, philosophy of life. They've said in their heart, I am, and there was no one else beside me. The picture of pure narcissism, just self-indulgence, self-deception. Romans, Paul says in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches both of wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, what he says here in this kind of an exclamation is, The depths are so great, we can't measure it. And it amazes me when I run into Christians here and there that aren't going to church anymore, or they quit going to a church that really teaches the Word, and they're going to some other church so they can feel good. And you say, well, how come you're not studying the Bible like they are? Well, you know, I know enough. Really? Really? The depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God are unsearchable and beyond our measure and you know enough? Wow. That's just unbelievable. Now, what Paul tells us in Colossians 2.3 is that it is in Christ are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge. But we have to learn that. It doesn't just happen. And then he says in verse 4, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. See, part of the job of a pastor teacher is to not only teach you the positive truth of God's word, but to teach the sheep, and that's not a remember, that's not a compliment. Sheep are dumb. So pastors sometimes have to get pretty detailed, spend a lot of time exposing error, because there's some people who, even when it's you know smeared all over their face, they still can't smell it. But part of the role of the apostle and the pastor is to, is to teach the errors of the day so that, because Satan is a master counterfeiter. And the, there may be a, t- a 5% difference between truth and error. And too many people don't have enough, what's that word, understanding, discernment, to pick out the 5% that's different. And they get sucked right into error, which is happening in most evangelical congregations, I believe, because they don't get enough teaching. So Paul says here, I say this, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. And the word there for deceive is a word that we don't find a lot in in the uh, Greek New Testament. It's the word paralegizomai. We've looked at, in Romans, we looked at uh, legizomai, which is a word for thinking, consider, uh, imputation, things of this nature. But this is a compound word. It's uh, prefixed by a Greek preposition, para, 
and it means to cheat or deceive or to delude someone. Now, the most dominant word we have in the New Testament for deception is the word planao, which has the literal meaning of leading something off the track. Planao. But in planao, uh, this word was used um, by the Gnostics and the mystery cults as a technical term for man's entanglement in the world from which he needed to be released. So in Plato, the idea of this kind of deception uh, was used to express a digression of thought, and uh, it only had a, a, a non-moral sense of being off track in terms of, in terms of thinking. So in some ways, because it was used by the Gnostics, we might expect Paul to use that word, but he didn't. Another word used in the New Testament for deception is the word apatao, which is uh, which has the idea of deceit, the idea of trickery, the idea of deception, and it is related to ignorance. It's related to ignorance. But Paul doesn't use that here either, which we might think he would use that. He uses this word paralogizomai because it has the, uh, the root meaning logizomai has the idea of thought, Paralogizomai has the idea of deception based on false reasoning. We hear people give speeches, politicians, pastors, televangelists, and they make a compelling rhetorical case for falsehood, and people get sucked into it. That's why Paul uses this word, because what they're hearing from the sophists, and from the rhetoricians in Colossae is a, is a very convincing case for their lies. So Paul says, lest anyone should deceive you through this kind of rhetorical sleight of hand with persuasive words. This is a, another, uh, this is the only time the word used in the New Testament, uh, pithonologia which has to do with persuasive speech, being able to craft an argument. This is a debater's technique to try to convince you that they're true using everything at their disposal, but it's not true. And what Paul says is part of the role of the apostle and the the pastor is to be able to prepare the sheep so that they don't get sucked into this. This is exactly what Paul warned the leaders of the church at Ephesus about in Acts 20, uh, 28 to 31. He said, just look at verse 30, or 29, he says, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, what? Be alert, watch, and remember that for three days I did not cease to warn, or for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So part of the pastoral ministry is to expose error. And I've found in my life and thinking often when I have error exposed well, I see truth more clearly. Because we often can't tell whether something's eggshell white or off-white unless we compare it to true white. And it's in that comparison that we can see the truth. Now, how does this happen? One last thought, 1 Timothy 2.7. Prior to this, 
Paul had encouraged Timothy to work hard in the ministry, he used three examples, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. The next thing he said was, consider what I say. It's a Greek word, noeo, which has the idea of thought. Think a lot about what I say. That's how a believer grows. He doesn't grow just by reading through five verses in a devotional every morning. That's good to give you basic knowledge of Scripture and things like that. He doesn't get it just by sitting in church or in Bible class and taking notes. He gets it by going back and thinking about what he's been taught, reflecting on it uh, under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And in that process of time, then we grow and we come to uh, better, more clear understandings of the truth so that we can apply it. So the issue, the question is, where's your treasure? What are you digging for? Are you willing to dig into the Word to get the treasure that will never rust and will never be destroyed? Are you just using this as sort of a, uh, a little window dressing in your life so that your conscience is uh, satisfied that you feel spiritual? And then you can go pursue what's really important in life, whatever else that might be with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful that we have this time to be challenged by your word, to reflect upon its importance, its significance in our life, and recognize that there is only one truth, and that truth is revealed by you, and so nothing else is more important than to know truth. And we can know truth, and you have revealed it to us, but it's it's not so that we don't have to apply our thinking. We have to think about it. We have to reflect upon it. We have to meditate upon it. And as we do that, God, the Holy Spirit uses it to strengthen us spiritually and to mature us spiritually. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that you would make these things true, uh, make these things clear to them that they will know that they can have eternal life. Scripture says that the only way that we can have eternal life is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as our substitute for our sins. He paid the penalty. We can't do anything to add to it. We simply accept it as a free gift. And by trusting in him and him alone, we have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we've studied this morning. In Christ's name, amen.